Welcome to the special edition of Geopolitics Decanted by Silverado. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank here in Washington, D.C. And my guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, director of East Asia Nonproliferation Project at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey. He's a leading researcher and thinker on arms control issues and nonproliferation, and his handle on Twitter is Arms Control Wonk, uh, where he's a very prolific contributor. So welcome to the podcast, Jeffrey. Hey, it's great to be talking to you. Thanks. So let's talk today about the Iran deal and all of the focus on the war in Ukraine, understandably so, people losing sight of what is, uh, or of course was, one of the top issues for the Biden administration when they came into office, which is to rejoin the so-called GCPOA, uh, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran deal that the, the Obama administration had struck, and many of the people that are now in the leading positions in the Biden administration, like Jake, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, were of course leading negotiators back then to get that deal into place. Uh, the Trump administration withdrew from it, and now the Biden administration was trying to get back into the deal with the Iranians. We've had a little bit of a roller coaster ride in terms of the news cycle on this thing over last year. We were very close, apparently, according to some news stories, before the Iranian election uh, back last summer when the hardliner president was elected. Um, there was a pause in negotiations, but apparently we were once again close this winter. Uh, but where do you see things now? Obviously, we don't know for certain. Uh, about how the negotiations are progressing. But from the news stories that you're following, what are you seeing? Well, things seem to be stuck, as best I can tell. And it's a little difficult to know why they're stuck. Uh, the official version of events, which makes some sense, is that uh, they had a deal and at the last minute with the situation in Ukraine, the Russians stopped being constructive and that the Russians somehow sabotaged it. And that that like mostly makes sense to me, except it doesn't completely make sense because if the US and Iran and the EU wanted a deal, I mean, the Russians are like nice to have, um, but I th think they would have found the political will to do so. And so there are these other issues that keep bubbling up, right? And so the two issues that have, have been really troublesome lately are the Iranians pressing for some kind of guarantee uh, that a future president, a future U.S. president won't withdraw from the agreement, which the Biden administration is just in no position to offer because, you know, we have elections. Uh, but then also the question of whether uh, the IRGC uh, gets delisted as a, as, as a terrorist group, right? The deal is fundamentally about sanctions relief for um, limits on Iran's nuclear program. But then the question is like, well, how much sanctions relief do you want to give them? And, and how much is really politically feasible to give them? And, and the IRGC is sort of where the rubber hits the road on that. Yeah. You know, I, I was talking um, back in December when I thought that it was very likely that the Russians were going to invade Ukraine, that we were we need to be thoughtful about our response. Of course, at the time, no one knew how the invasion would unfold, and we, we didn't know about all the atrocities that would be committed. But one of the, th the ways that I thought the Russians might retaliate is by trying to sabotage the Iranian deal. Um, and I've been told by administration officials that they've actually been very, very helpful until recently in getting the Iranians back to the table, 
and being very productive and pushing the Iranians to make some concessions here. And I thought that, uh, of course, if the Iranians want to get a deal done, we could get a deal done. But if the Russians are whispering in their ear, don't do it, maybe we'll sell you S-400 air defense systems, maybe we'll do a nuclear cooperation agreement, maybe we'll sell you submarines and other things. If you don't do this deal, then it becomes very attractive for them to consider other options. So I don't know if that's what's going on here, but uh, the Russians certainly have a lot of ways to muck up the deal beyond just their insistence on uh, sanctions relief uh, for any trade that they do with Iran uh, that would be exempted from the sanctions we put on them as a result of the Ukrainian invasion. But let me ask you this. At the end of the day, how much do the elections in Iran really matter when it comes to this deal? Isn't this ultimately to the supreme leader to decide whether the deal is acceptable or not. And, uh, you know, regardless if it's a quote unquote moderate, there's a president or hardliner like we have now, um, it's going to be up to to him to determine whether he wants to get back into this deal. Yeah, I think it's it's true in one way and, and, and not true in another. And the way in which it's true is, you know, he's the supreme leader and he's the center of the system. And if the Supreme Leader is opposed to something, I think it's not going to happen. Uh, at the same time, you know, Iran's politics are really fascinating. And I I, I can only barely uh, see them operating. But the Supreme Leader seems to be a fairly cagey individual. Um, and so, you know, the Supreme Leader allowed the uh, Rouhani administration, which negotiated the deal, to go ahead and do it. You know, he set a bunch of red lines and he made it clear it wasn't really his deal. Um, and so he sort of allowed, I think, the Rouhani administration um, to basically bear all the risk. And I, I think if if sanctions relief had happened the way that the Rouhani administration imagined it would have, and it were popular, the Supreme Leader would have been like, ah, it was my idea all along. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he seems to run things so that if things go badly, then he can also say, well, I told you so. And, and some of his public remarks, I think, have come come pretty close to that. So, you know, I do think the people around him matter, not because he takes a vote or anything like that, but because I think he is constantly trying to maintain his position and his authority and his control. And I think he plays different factions off against one another. And so for me, one of the really big questions has been like, we know that there are people in Iran who wanted a nuclear weapon because they were running a nuclear weapons program up until 2003. Uh you know, I used to joke when he was still alive that Mosin Fakhrizadeh, the the uh, top Iranian nuclear scientist, I just imagined him in an office with a phone on the desk, and he's just sitting there playing like Minesweeper on his on his computer, just waiting for the phone to ring and tell him it's back on. The, this, so we know this those was the guy that was sort of the father of the Iranian bomb program, right? That was assassinated yeah. famously, supposedly through a uh, sniper rifle that was remotely controlled from Israel. That totally that guy. So I, you know, I know those people exist. On the other hand, I think there were people who decided nuclear weapons program was more trouble than it was worth. And so my sense is those are pretty big factions. And by the way, neither of them, I should say, are particularly like lovable factions. Like it's not like the people who think nuclear weapons are more trouble than it's worth are like, uh, you know, like uh, we have we sort of imagine like, oh, maybe they're like, you know, American progressives. Like, no, they're not. They're just they have a different strategic calculation about what's good for Iran. George Washington's there, right? Yeah, exactly. So I, I think the Supreme leader balances those groups off against one another. And for me, the real question has been, 
why the Raisi administration has been willing to continue on with these talks. And honestly, I was surprised when they got as close as they did, because my suspicion was um, that that the people around Raisi were not going to be enthusiastic about sticking their necks out for a deal with the U.S. And, you know, why would they? So what did the Iranians really want? Because if you look at when this program started, right after the revolution, well, actually, the Shah wanted nuclear weapons as well. So he started making progress on that. But it really kicked off into gear after the revolution in the 80s. And depending on how you count, uh, and it really doesn't matter, this has been probably the longest uh, path to nuclear weapon in history that hasn't yet been achieved. And obviously, some of it has been due to sabotage, the famous Stuxnet attack on the Natanz enrichment facility um, attributed to the U.S. and Israel, the various assassinations that have been attributed to Israel of scientists and what have you. But that can't explain it all, right? And we know that the U.S. intelligence community has said that the, the weaponization part of the program, at least, had stopped in 2003. At least publicly, they have not uh, said that the program has resumed. So what is really going on there? Do they really want a nuclear weapon? Or do they just want to be a threshold state that can rush to, to a nuclear weapon if they need to within a few months? Yeah, my sense is that when the program really started around 2000, in that, in that period, it was there were a group of people who really wanted a weapon. Um, but what their idea was, they wanted kind of the South Africa solution, which is they would build a small number like six. They'd put them away somewhere. And they wouldn't even mention them until they found themselves in a security problem. And then they might demonstrate one which is exactly what South Africa did. They stockpiled a small number of nuclear weapons and ready to test site so that, you know, they could disclose if they wanted. My sense is the the fundamental thing that happened was the public disclosure of the program in 2000, late 2002 and then into 2003 triggered uh, a ton of international pressure. And it also engaged a larger segment of the Iranian government in, in the program. I think the program had been secret not not just to us, but to like a lot of people in Iran. And that period, and that's sort of why, you know, Iran's been a year away from a bomb for now 20 years. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but it sometimes feels like that, right? Is that the, that I think there is a real debate inside about what the right balance is between having a capability and then paying the international costs of getting that capability. And so my guess is that people like uh, Hassan Rouhani, when he was the lead negotiator in the mid-2000s and then as president, I think his model is like Japan, right? He wants people to think that they could do it. Um, and he wants to get the sort of prestige of having the scientific capability. But I think the actual bombs themselves to him seemed like a bigger liability than they were a benefit. People in the nuclear weapons program disagreed, right? Like they wanted the actual bombs. And so my guess is the reason that they have had this slow, slow march is less the sabotage and more the political indecision about whether they really want to go for it. And if they go for it, will it be revealed? And if it's revealed, then what does that crisis look like? And I I just think that they've been cautious, you know, and it's, it's no guarantee that caution is going to continue. Uh, and, and, you know, if they thought that they could sneak to that outcome, I think there's a chance it might happen. So I, you know, the good and the bad news, right? The good news is I think the international pressure worked 
And I think that their domestic politics were fractious enough that we did get a deal that I thought maybe had a chance of holding. But, you know, the the bad news is like, that's a very contingent state of affairs. And it, you know, it doesn't last forever, uh, especially if there's all this other ambient tension in the relationship. So, of course, the other thing that happened in 2003 when they supposedly stopped the program is we invaded Iraq. And at, the, at least initially, that looked like a, an incredible success, being able to take over the government in uh, just a matter of weeks. Uh, and now we had troops surrounding Iran from Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And then Libya shortly thereafter renounced their nuclear program and uh, came clean. So that, that probably had something to do with their calculus as well, that the costs, uh, the, the implied cost of trying to rush to a nuclear weapon uh, started to look more and more dangerous uh, with the U.S. troops right on their border, right? Oh, yeah. I think that that was a real shock to their system. And, you know, it was a, it actually led to a failed effort by the Iranians to reach out, uh, which was done probably on behalf of Javad Zarif, who at the time uh, was the, what, I think he was the ambassador in New York. He's mm-hmm. later the foreign minister actually gets the nuclear deal. And, you know, again, I, I try to emphasize what I think are the importance of Iranian politics, because I think there are people in Iran who do want a deal and and look at nuclear weapons as a, a capability that's better held as a capability, not something that's realized. Um, but then there are the other dudes, too. Right. And, and it's always this question of who's up and who's down and how do international events favor them. And I, I think in the invasion of Iraq, that was certainly a big enough shock that uh, people were excited about talking. Now, the problem is things, we thought things were going so well for us that we weren't interested in talking, right? right. It's, it's always a day late and a dollar short, right? Then once things start to go bad and we're like, oh, actually, we do want to talk. They're like, no, not anymore. Right. The hubris, unfortunately. But, you know, so you say that maybe they don't necessarily want the weapon itself, but w- would want the the option uh, to rush to a nuclear weapon. But they're paying an enormous price for that option and have been for 20 years, right? The, obviously, the sanctions that are uh, uh, in place on them right now are extremely severe. But th- through the last 20 years and even before, we've had significant sanctions that have been impacting their ability to grow their economy and be integrated into um, the global financial system. And uh, I, I'm almost wondering, would the price, if they were to rush to a nuclear weapon, be uh, any more significant uh, from their perspective than the cost that they're suffering right now for the option to do so? I mean, I worry about that. Uh, you know, I certainly think that for a while, the argument that Rouhani was making about the value of sanctions relief resonated with a lot of Iranians, in part because they believed that there was light at the end of the tunnel. Um, And one of the most alarming things I saw was after the deal was signed, you saw people in Iran like pouring out into the streets because they thought it really meant that that their isolation was over. And I thought those expectations were like way too high. But you do have to wonder, is there a point at which a couple of things happen? One is that the cost of the sanctions becomes baked in. You know, it's one thing if you have an export business and because of the sanctions, you're going to be bankrupt. You're like really motivated. But once you're bankrupt, you move on, right? And you have some new business and your business has been replaced by like an IRGC dude who probably smuggles stuff in, right? And and he's kind of happy with the sanctions because he's, he's got a smuggling business. And so you, you, 
I, I think we see economies adjust and adapt and you get new winners and new losers. And at some point, like, maybe if you're the Iranians and you look at it and you're like, well, we're just shut out of the West. Uh, but, you know, they're the, they're the Russians and they're the Chinese. And, and you know, honestly, the, uh, there are a lot of countries around the world that are, I think, sort of sitting on the sidelines at the moment with the uh, situation in Ukraine. And maybe if you're the Iranians, you just say like, well, I mean, this is just our lot in life. And if that happens, right, then the, then the, the value those sanctions had in encouraging the Iranians to make a reasonable accommodation declines really dramatically. Um, so I, it's always my warning. Like, we love sanctions. I know why we love sanctions. They're easy to slap on. Nobody gets killed. You, you look tough without actually having to be tough. It's like the perfect solution. But they really do, I think, have this very limited window in which they're effective. And then if you wait too long, you know, it just becomes kind of kind of the environment in which decisions are getting made and they don't really bite anymore. So let's talk about GCPOA itself, at least the prior incarnation that was struck during the Obama administration. Certainly from my perspective, it was not a perfect deal. Uh, we did not get everything that we wanted and particularly the sunset provisions that would trigger, you know, 10, 15 years uh, from from the date of the deal. Uh, were problematic, but it was always puzzling to me why you had such significant opposition in Congress on both sides of the aisle. And we see that even today with the recent letter from a number of prominent Democrats in the House to the Biden administration expressing their concerns about those negotiations moving forward. And then from the Israelis themselves, because in the absolutely worst case scenario, that deal was pushing the ball down the field by decade or more. And even though that doesn't solve the problem, it's better than, from my perspective, having the Iranians be much that closer to uh, achieving uh, a breakout capability. Uh, why do you think that is? And particularly from an Israeli perspective, who really think that this is an existential threat for them, I think justifiably so. Um, why th they had such a puzzling uh, uh, attitude towards GCPOA? I just never understood that. Yeah, I think in both Israel and the United States, it's just the way in which we think about foreign policy. You know, as somebody who's a, a foreign policy professional, I, I kind of take a bloodless analytic thing to it. Um, you know, I think that like most governments around the world are kind of crappy. And so it doesn't really bother me that the Iranian government is crappy and treats its citizens badly and engages in all kinds of terrible behavior abroad because I, I just, I'm okay with that. Like that's kind of the world that we live in. And I, you know, we have allies who are crappy too. Like, it's just kind of how things are. But, uh, you know, I think for a lot of people, the Iranians are deeply unlikable as a government. And a lot, in my experience, a lot of debates, especially in Washington, but I suspect also in Israel, boil down to, do you like this country? And so we really looked, a lot of people were able to frame this agreement with the Iranians as, do you like the Iranians? Do you want to give them this reward of sanctions relief? And once it gets framed like that, then I think it just becomes really hard for politicians to defend it. And, you know, honestly, politicians are kind of cowardly. I mean, one thing I found really interesting about the debate about the JCPOA in the U.S. is Congress insisted on a role, which is fine. You know, I, I don't love the idea, but whatever. They insisted on a role. But the actual mechanism that Congress created allowed them to all vote against the deal, but for the president to nonetheless still go ahead and do it. You know, and it was like the classic congressional, like, 
I'm for it, but I'm going to vote against it because Barry Obama is going to pick up the check. You know, and I just I I would get so mad uh, like Corker, the Republican from Tennessee, I understand because there's a partisan issue. But I would get so frustrated with Senator Schumer and Cardin because they voted against the Iran nuclear deal. They talked about how bad of a deal it was. And then when Donald Trump went to pull out, they were like, well, this is a terrible mistake to pull out of the deal. You know, you have to preserve it. And it's it's like that mask drop. So I just think the politics of making an agreement with a government as unlikable as Iran's is just completely toxic, given how we talk about foreign policy. And I, you know, I, I just recognize that if you do this stuff full time, I'm sure as you've discovered, like I think we just look at these things maybe less sentimentally than than a than a normal person would. Yeah, you just think that in Israel, in particular having had the history of the Holocaust and, and looking at an existential threat that they would be much more um, pragmatic about the solution? Or perhaps do they think that the big problem for them is not the Iranian nuclear program, but the Iranian terrorist activities, the support for terrorist groups like Hezbollah, Hamas, etc. in the region, and that they could handle the Iranian breakout capabilities that if the Iranians rush for it, they could do strikes and delay it like they had done with Iraq. Do you think that's part of their calculus? You know, I think it's wishful thinking if it is uh, in terms of what they would be able to do militarily. But I do think that at some deeper level, if you decide that the problem is the regime, not necessarily how it's armed, um, it does lead you to a position where you want to do everything you can to try to isolate, weaken, contain the regime. And so a deal, you know, for the same reason that the Iranians poured out into the streets in celebration of the deal, that looks, I think, very threatening. I mean, I, I have a friend who had a, a, a different opinion on the deal than I did. And, I, you know, he's very honest with me. He said, you know, the problem with the deal is it, it settles the nuclear issue. And when you take that off the table, your capacity to put sanctions in Iran and otherwise contain the regime are lessened. And so I think that's a real difference, right? There are people who want to put sanctions on Iran because they don't like the regime. And my issue area of nuclear weapons is useful to them, but only tactically. So it's a priority me, thing that they don't care as much about the nuclear right. program as they care about other malign activities that Iran is engaged in. Right. But as a, like a full-time nuclear guy, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of like, well, you know, there are lots of bad countries in the world. And I, you know, I just, trying to keep as many of the bad countries from having nuclear weapons as possible. So make the deal. And like, I get it. That's like a, just a difference in perspective. Got it. So let's talk about if we don't get back into the deal as it's starting to look unlikely and Iran becomes uh, a breakout state, permanent, permanent breakout state, or even gets nuclear weapons. How does the world change? I mean, you are one of the, the, the only one, people, I think, uh, publicly that is saying that Iran is likely going to become a nuclear state, and we need to start thinking through what that means. Most people still are in denial about that. But what does that mean for you? How, how does the world change on that day when Iran, let's say, tests a nuclear weapon? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it changes depending on how much they do and what they do. You know, if, if, if you get the pre-2003 mindset, which I kind of now starting to think we might be lucky to get where they build them, but then maintain a lot of what we used to call opacity about them, um, which is annoying because they're lying to the IAEA and they're just generally being a pain. But at the same time, they're not flaunting the capability um, 
the world might not look too different. So um, no test, right? No test, right? No over claim of, of, of responsibility. I mean, I, uh, it's in some ways it's, 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 it's akin to what Israel did in the early seventies. Um, and it's honestly what I think North Korea was trying to do with Donald Trump, which was a little harder to like, well, I'm, I mean, they had tested a nuclear weapon back in the two thousands. Right. So they were already nuclear weapon. Right. That's why I say it's a little harder with North Korea. They were trying to kind of put the, put the genie back in the bottle of like, well, what if we pretended we didn't have them anymore? You know, uh, and I, you know, like it didn't work. And then like, there's a reason it didn't work. I, but I think a lot of countries imagine that, you know, India and Pakistan did this where they had a, a long period of opacity. India had done a test, but they pretended it was a peaceful test, which is goofy, but whatever. Um, and Pakistan hadn't tested, right? So if you had a situation with no test, which I think for Iran would be the threshold, you might see some hedging behavior, particularly in Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, if Iran conducted a test, then I think it, things become really quite difficult. I am not someone who believes in like nuclear dominoes, you know, like North Korea tested a nuclear weapon. I don't think Japan, I did not think, and I still do not believe Japan would respond with nuclear weapons uh, development. Oh, they have South Korea. Right. And South Korea, it's like a little more complicated, but that's still basically a no. So I, I, I'm not a domino person, but boy, I think there would be a lot of pressure in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE to respond. And we don't, I think, have the relationship with Saudi Arabia and the UAE that we do with South Korea and Japan. Well, also right? there's the domestic population that might be opposed to nuclear weapons in right. Japan there's and South no Korea. In, those in fact, they're yeah. very opposed to even peaceful nuclear energy that, you know, in Saudi Arabia, there would be less concern about asking the people what they like right. and want. So that would be, you know, managing, managing allied proliferation, right? And uh, Turkey is another country that might, you know, just you don't know with Erdogan what they would choose to do. And by the way, all of these countries have missile programs, which like does not get talked about for reasons I do not understand. I, in my little WMD world, I sit here and scream like China built Saudi Arabia a solid <laughs> missile production factory. Please pay attention. And people are like, oh, really? And then six months later, you say it again. And they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Like I told you. <laughs> So I think, you know, that there is some real possibility for one or one or two countries to follow suit it's just because we don't have the kind of bilateral relationship that would allow us to exert effective pressure. And as you say, there are no domestic constraints, I think, on those countries. So let me ask you this. Do nuclear weapons in small numbers actually change anything for a country? Because, you know, if you look at Russia-Ukraine situation right now, right? Obviously, Russia has thousands of nuclear weapons, operational nuclear weapons, and it is trying to invade a non-nuclear state, not succeeding, and is facing massive support from the West in terms of military support, economic, etc., um, to Ukraine. And we are not deterred by Russian nuclear weapons, um, at least in, in, in terms of that support. Obviously, we're not uh, engaging in direct military confrontation, but you know, nuclear weapons, even for Russia... Uh, that has a massive nuclear arsenal, does not give them a carte blanche um, and um, is, is quite limiting. So does it actually solve anything for Iran? You know, the, the fear that I've heard many people express is if Iran gets nuclear weapons, it'll give them a free hand in the re region and will allow them to engage in even more terrorist attacks and, and support for all kinds of vile people in the region and elsewhere um, than they're doing now. But I, I'm not sure that we would not be confronting them on these issues even if they had nuclear weapons. 
And perhaps the nuclear weapons would deter us from invading them. But um, it's not like there's any support for that scenario here in this country anyway. Yeah, I think the value of the weapons is usually less than policymakers imagine. And, and so one of the hardest parts of my job is keeping straight what I think is true versus being empirical about what people who actually get to make decisions think. Uh, because I'm sort of of the view that they aren't really all that valuable. I mean, we definitely worried that as North Korea acquired nuclear weapons, that it might become more aggressive, right? That if you think about it, if you have nuclear weapons and you're suddenly more secure, it's like putting on a ski helmet. You can just enjoy your normal daily ski at a higher level of safety, or you could also be like a little crazier and decide to like go whip in between trees. And that I think that's going to depend on the policymaker. You know, uh, some some leaders and some governments would take the advantage conferred by nuclear weapons and probably become more aggressive. Others might not. And I think in the case of Iran, it's just very hard to tell because I, they're already quite aggressive in the region. You know, it does not seem to me that Iran is terribly deterred uh, from engaging in serious violence in Iraq. And I, I think we saw that during the Trump administration, where you had a uh, an administration that talked a lot about maximum pressure and was, uh, you know, willing to kill Qasem Soleimani, right, the head of the, the IRGC's external operations, I, I think is the best way to describe That's that. Good force, yeah. And, and, um, you know, the Iranians responded to that by launching a significant number of ballistic missiles at a U.S. airbase. And, you know, I think we're extremely lucky nobody was killed, but, you know, more than 100 service persons had had traumatic brain injuries. And it would have been very easy for someone to be killed in a strike like that. And so. Yeah, this idea that was initially you know, proposed by the administration that. They gave us warnings, so this was just uh, a show of force not designed to kill, I think has been discredited because people could have easily been killed and, and oh, quite, yeah. quite a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think they provided any warning. I think the U.S. picked up signs that an attack was coming, and, and so there was an ability to get people in shelters. Uh, but just looking at how the Iranians targeted the site, I mean, one thing we did is we went and found all the craters and we we wanted to do aim points just to figure out how accurate the missiles were. But it was extremely clear that their targeting of that base was targeting facilities where there would normally be people. Um, so I, I I think that, you know, they were willing to run that risk. And, you know, maybe nuclear weapons would change that. Maybe they, but I, they seem pretty risk tolerant up to a certain level at the moment. So, I, you know, my advice to the Iranians would be don't do it. And and my guess is that's why people like Hassan Rouhani were willing to, to just have this kind of abstract capability. Um, but I accept that in the Iranian system, not everybody is a, a nice, likable guy. Like me. <laughs> and right. some people may be like, I, I'd still prefer the bomb. But, but it's interesting because the North Korean example, as you mentioned, has not changed anything regarding our calculus. We're still committed to the defense of South Korea. We're still having tripwire forces there that if the North Koreans invade, we're going to get into conflict with now a nuclear armed state. Um, none of that has been taken off the table as a result of them acquiring nuclear weapons. So, you know, perhaps they've gotten 
more protection in terms of maybe we wouldn't respond all the way to Pyongyang. We would just throw them out of South Korean territory. But um, that's probably as much as they've gotten, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that if you're the if you're the Iranians or the North Koreans, I can see the case for wanting a basic deterrent capability um, because you might be worried about a, an Iraq-style invasion. Uh, but to be honest, I mean, that's a that it's it's a hard case because I think that's a pretty unusual historical event. You know, I don't expect the U.S. to try to invade Iran or or North Korea, but. I guess it's hard to tell the Iranians and the North Koreans that. But I think beyond that general deterrent capability of buying you some insurance against a, a full-scale invasion, I don't really think those weapons translate into any kind of particular political power or freedom of action, um, You know, particularly if you end up facing another nuclear armed power, whether it's in the case of North Korea, you know, through proxy because the U.S. is there, uh, or if you're Iran and you end up, you know, staring at a nuclear armed Saudi Arabia. So, you know, I do think we we can make the case that these weapons are not as useful as people think they are. Um, you know, it's just an interesting question about whether people will listen. So where are we heading if we step away from Iran for for a second? But look at sort of the trend lines, right? In the last 25 years, we've had Pakistan and India test nuclear weapons and become nuclear nuclear states. Uh, we, we've had North Korean do the same thing. You know, you believe that Iran is going to get there as well. You know, are we sort of in the new period now um, since the, the passing of the non-proliferation treaty that uh, back in the 70s that we kind of froze, uh, you know, by and large, a variety of different proliferation agreements and then even rolled them back with South Africa and Latin American countries and, and um, in the former Soviet Union. But, you know, are we in this new period where we're going to see an explosion of proliferation and many countries starting to develop covert programs and starting to rush for a bomb? Or is this just going to be limited to Iran uh, and maybe Saudi Arabia uh, and Turkey? I think it's going to be limited in the near term, but I am very worried about the long-term trends. And I think we saw a little hint of this, which is the technologies necessary for making nuclear weapons, long-range missiles, those are so much more freely available now. Uh, and so I think people sort of misunderstand the lesson of Pakistan's nuclear weapon and, and AQCON's network which is, it's not so much that Pakistan acquired this capability and sold it. It's that AQ Khan figured out that there was so much manufacturing capability now distributed across the globe that he could create an international supply network that would serve Pakistan without it having the domestic capability that would typically be used. And it's that network, right, that he made available to Iran and Libya and North Korea. And so... We did see in the early 2000s a mini wave of proliferation because Libya started a program, Iran's program became what we're dealing with now, and North Korea shifted its program, right? And, and so we lived through that. And Syria yeah, as well. And Syria, right. So, you know, I think we will see these bursts because the tools we have for nonproliferation have, I think, been too heavily focused on export controls and sanctions. I mean, I understand why, but 
the problem is those those things are becoming less effective. And we're kind of now in this position where there's like a lot more persuasion that needs to go in. Uh, and like, that's like, it's just, that's a harder thing to do. Um, you know, it's maybe, you know, you do it with your allies, you can find ways to, uh, you know, you make it harder for them. So you have a little bit more leverage, but you really have to come with whatever they're looking for, whether it's, you know, security guarantees or, or, uh, you know, whatever that sense of prestige is driving a program. So I do, you know, at the moment, I don't, I don't expect like a giant global wave, but we just live in this strange situation where if Iran does cross this threshold and they do so openly, our ability to physically prohibit Saudi Arabia or Turkey or the UAE from following suit is much more limited than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And it means you have to do all this other stuff, you know, which is, I think Although I we, we do have, a, we do have a lot of yeah. economic leverage over these countries because they're still allies. Turkey is in NATO. You know, we don't have, you know, tremendous leverage, but certainly more than we do over Iran, right? Well, certainly more than we do over Iran. Yes, I would agree. But I worry. I mean, maybe I'm just a worry wart, but just watching how difficult the U.S. relationship with Turkey has become um, and I just seeing some of the tensions with Saudi Arabia, particularly over Ukraine, you know, I... I don't know that it's going to be as easy for us as it was in the past. You know, when Taiwan had a nuclear weapons program in the 70s and then again in the 80s, it was like, you have no other friends. <laughs> like, 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 you are not allowed to do this. We will make this like feel better for you somehow. But like the answer is no. And you don't really have a lot of choices. I, that's a much, I think that is a more tricky conversation to have with any of the three, three countries I just mentioned. Well, and I wonder if there's actually going to be an appetite for it, because I bet you a lot of people in government and outside of government right yes. now wish Taiwan had a nuclear weapon, right? So yes. at what point do they say, these are allies, why not? We forget how shallow the or or recent the norm against allied proliferation really is. When Richard Nixon uh, agreed to seek ratification of the NPT in the United States, uh, his condition was that under no circumstance would the United States pressure any ally to join the treaty. And he specifically mentioned West Germany, that under no circumstances would we pressure West Germany, because in his mind, it was still okay when our allies did it. And so, you know, that we have this kind of model, but it's not clear to me the idea that our allies shouldn't have nuclear weapons is necessarily going to be something that a large number of U.S. officials will believe in 20 years, especially if all our enemies do. And, and, you know, there's been a lot written on how Kennedy was trying very hard to pressure Israel not to uh, have a nuclear weapons program. And then when he was uh, assassinated, that sort of all died down under LBJ and not really continued since then. So, um we, we do have to, 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 to have changed our opinion on that um, time and time again. Let me ask you this. Do you think that we missed the boat in the 80s and 90s? Because in 2000s, uh, the Bush administration launched the Nonproliferation Initiative that I think was quite effective at um, seizing, uh, well, identifying networks like IQ Khan, although that proceeded a little bit, and um, you know controlling those um, 
key materials and technologies that are used in enrichment and, and, and um, weaponization. If we had done that earlier, do you think that AQ Khan could have done what he ultimately did? It's a really good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I will say that there is this kind of chicken and egg problem where the nature of Khan's proliferation network w- was dealing with private companies in allied countries, right? And and Germany was a particularly big one. And even before AQ Khan in the, the late 80s, um, there were a number of German companies that were assisting Iraq and Brazil in the development of, of, of their nuclear programs. And so I always wonder, is the problem that we didn't try hard enough and we waited too long? Um, and Or is it that we tried, but it was not possible for us to get allied policymakers to really take the threat seriously um, until it really was staring them in the face. And by then, maybe it was too late. You know, the a lot of the regimes that we have, uh, like the missile technology control regime, come out of that awareness in the 1980s that these technologies that once were really just a U.S. and, 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 and Soviet preserve were now pretty widely diffused through wealthy industrialized countries, and that meant Europe. And we really tried to put a lot of pressure on European allies to cut off uh, sales of, of uh, you know, missile components. I mean, the, the famous case is uh, it's a European consortium that was helping Argentina develop the Condor too, which would have wished the Argentines were co-developing with the Iraqis and the Egyptians. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think globally we missed the boat. You know, we, 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 had an opportunity, I think, to really think more deeply about how to restrain these capabilities. But then the question comes, were we just always going to do that? Or if, if you know, the president had cared about it more, would it have made a difference? And I, I just don't know. And I, and I have to say, I know a lot of, you know, I know a lot of nonproliferation people from the 1980s and they were trying. So, you know, I don't want to be too negative about it because it's, it's hard to look at people who've been doing this since I was in diapers you know, and tell them they didn't try hard enough because my guess is they 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 tried well, pretty hard. But it, it takes leadership from a presidential level, and we have to give yeah. Bush credit here, Bush too, that he did make that a top priority yeah. in terms of the nonproliferation initiative, and that gave it the oomph that it needed uh, on a global stage to really do a lot of great things. It did. It helped a lot with interdictions for sure. Uh, you know, I mean, one issue is this now gets down into the weeds, but one of the, one of the fundamental problems is. You know, we look a lot at North Korean facilities for making missiles, and, and some of that stuff would be very good for making centrifuges. And they have these giant machine tools, uh, a lot of which are based on German models from the 70s and 80s. You know, And those were really hot machine tools in the 90s because they weren't that old. But today they're basically antiques, but they're perfectly good at making a missile that will kill you. Uh, and then we see a lot of other machine tools that are coming out of China. and And just the ability of Chinese companies to make versions of these machine tools that again, 30 or 40 years ago would have been state of the art. Um, but you know, today are the kind of thing that you could buy for like, you know, less than a hundred thousand dollars. And they still work. Uh, I, yeah. They work great. You know, they, I mean, look, nuclear weapons would have killed you in 1978. If you build that same nuclear weapon today, it's still going to kill you. So, you know, I, 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 I think the proliferation security initiative really did 
improve enforcement of existing export controls. Um, but it was, I think it was asking a lot of export controls and interdictions and sanctions to solve a problem that was as big um, as, as, as the one that we're facing. Let me ask you about the evolution of technology, because you just talked about machines that were invented in the 70s, but you now have a lot of money, a lot of research going into 3D printing, still in its nascent stage. But, you know, increasingly you could see a future where, I don't know, 10, 20 years from now, you could put a design into a machine and it spits out a centrifuge, right? Um, and how do you stop proliferation then? Is that in the realm of reality? Do you worry about that scenario? I'm feeling okay about 3D printing for now um, because a lot of the components are still pretty hard to manufacture. Um, but like, that's a for now statement, you know? And I, I, the example that I always give is China in the 1960s desperately wanted to move its nuclear testing underground uh, because they were dealing with a lot of political fallout, literally pun intended, uh, from the fallout from their nuclear tests. But they couldn't do it. Because the fundamental technology you need to be able to test underground is fiber optic cable. And it took the Chinese until the 1970s to develop a domestic fiber optic cable network because that was considered a really important and special technology. And, and that's Everyone of North because Korea, of speed of light transfers? Yeah, you need to... Um, a, a traditional cable is going to suffer severe attenuation uh, from the nuclear... from the phenomenon from the nuclear explosion. And so you're not going to get the data out the cable fast enough before the cable and the sensor are, are, are destroyed. Everyone in North Korea's nuclear test has been underground. It's not that North Korea has an amazing domestic fiber optic cable industry. It's that that's now a trivial technology. And so, um, you know, whether or not 3d printing is the thing that gets us to this future. I think the reality is, is that, when I make my list of hard to manufacture components for centrifuges or, you know, missile systems, I, like they're not as hard to manufacture as they were in the past because the very special things you needed are like way less special now. One other question here, you know, if, if your nightmare scenario comes to pass and you have, at least a mini explosion of proliferation occurring. Mm -hmm. uh, but you still have some sort of stability, that, like we've seen, frankly, with India and Pakistan and in other places where nuclear weapons are still a taboo and not uh, being used. You know, reading the history of the Cold War, you know, it strikes you how many times we've come close due to accidents or miscalculations uh, to launch of, of a nuclear weapon. How much more likely are those scenarios going to be if you have many more actors with questionable levels of control over their forces? I mean, to this day, you know, we don't know exactly the level of control that Pakistanis have of their forces and how infiltrated those um, forces are with jihadists uh, sympathetic to Taliban and so forth. Um, how real is that risk? I mean, I think it's, it's a risk. It's hard to put a number on it, but I come back to how I just fundamentally think about deterrence, which is I understand why people find nuclear deterrence to be an appealing solution because it's the kind of thing that's going to work day after day, most days. Uh, and, and you get a really big benefit out of it, which is nobody attacks you. 
The challenge, though, is as impossible as it sometimes is to imagine getting rid of nuclear weapons. It seems very naive and like head in the clouds. An equally crazy idea is that nuclear deterrence is going to work perfectly every day forever. Right. So I'm one of these people who feels like I see why India and Pakistan did what they did. And they really weren't able to fix their political relationship. And I think nuclear weapons have had some effect in mitigating that conflict. And so I can see why you would opt for that. On the other hand, I see stuff that terrifies me all the time. Like, for example, when the Indians accidentally missiled the Pakistanis the other day with an accidental Brahmos launch. Uh, And so, you know, I just, I have this kind of feeling of you're making a short-term bet that has this very long-term danger. And so I'm kind of okay with it. Like I understand that's just life and that's going to happen in some regions, but the academic in me, or maybe it's just the the scold, you know, still sits here in my glasses and says, now, you know, this is not going to work forever. And you're buying yourself time. And like, I am now interested in what you plan to do with that time. Because if your plan is just to, you know, muddle your way through, you know, we got through like, you know, 60 years in the cold war, you know? I, I don't know how we want to count the Cold War. I guess less than sixty years in the Cold War, but yeah, you know, we've we still have nuclear weapons with uh, what with uh, with the Russians. So, yeah, you know, you wrote a terrific book a few years ago on the hypothetical commission that hopefully never comes to pass that would be investigating a North Korean uh, attack. And I'm curious, what do you think the U.S. strategy should be now towards North Korea? Uh, you know, they, they've tested a nuclear weapon, what, now 16 years ago? It's been a long time, right, uh, since yeah. they've been a declared nuclear power. And we still seem to have this fantasy that they would one day abandon it. And, and they've given just zero uh, credence to that theory, in my view, certainly. So um, is it time for us to abandon the efforts to put the genie back in the bottle with the North Koreans and realize they'll never do it and start thinking about other ways to control um, the threat there, uh, potentially accidental launch, developing hotlines and other things that we do uh, with Russia and and try to do with other nuclear powers. So yes, is is my answer. I mean, I I like to joke, Kim Jong-un gave this speech at this defense expo uh, where he talked about how much he loved nuclear weapons and how important they were. uh, And in in the expo, there was um, the Hwasong-17, which is the, the big new ICBM they're developing to carry multiple warheads anywhere in the U.S. And he gives the speech in front of the missile. And after the speech, he goes up and he inspects the missile. Um, and then, like, I joke, he bought it a beer. He literally sits down with his friends for beers in front of the missile. Like, they're not giving them up. So we still have interests, even if they don't give them up. We have a real interest in reducing tension on the Korean Peninsula so we don't have a nuclear war. And, you know, my uh, Tom Schelling, who won a won a Nobel Prize in economics, was on my dissertation committee, used to make this argument all the time. And and I admit that as a as a as a little grad student, I was often like afraid uh, to stick my head above the parapet in the way he would, where, you know, he would say, like, look, 
I understand why North Korea wants nuclear weapons. He he was much more comfortable with nuclear deterrence than I ever was. Uh, he's like, if I were the North Koreans, I would want nuclear weapons and I would not give them up and they're not going to give them up. And it doesn't mean that our interests end. And we now have a real interest in getting them to behave responsibly with their nuclear weapons. And so he would ask me like, well, maybe the Chinese would talk to them about how to operate their nuclear forces safely. And I was like, no, no, they wouldn't do that. And he's like, well, maybe we could get the French to do it. And I, he just, he had, I thought this wonderful clarity that even if you have an unwelcome outcome, right? In this case, North Korea has nuclear weapons and we can't do anything about that. That doesn't mean that you throw a temper tantrum. It means that you accept the situation as it is. You assess the other interests you have and you try to work toward those. So, you know, I think that the the deal the North Koreans were offering Donald Trump was, as those things go, a pretty good deal. Not that it was a great deal in the sense that we got anything we wanted because we have no leverage, but it was a good deal in the sense that they were willing to stop doing the most egregious things. Um, and that struck me as at least the beginning of a process where you could sort of manage your interests, um, even if you were never going to get to the point of disarmament. Were you for the summits, the Singapore summit, the Vietnam summit that Donald Trump had with Kim Jong-un? It's hard. Abstractly, yes. In print or in, in practice, I, I, I was alarmed by the manner in which they were handled. Uh, and in particular, uh, although this didn't come to pass, so I guess I was just wrong about this, but I was very worried about the degree to which Donald Trump presented the relationship in romantic terms, not because I thought it was weird, although I thought it was weird, but at a deeper level, you know, like when romances go bad, they go to other uglier places. And I was always You're worried. You're of the breakup. That's right. I, I was always much more worried about the bad outcome if things went sideways. Um, and, and, you know, that may just be my bias, right? As an academic, I'm not used to world leaders talking about how they love each other. And like, that's just not a vernacular that I'm comfortable with as an analyst. Uh, so, you know, in general, I was for talking to the North Koreans because I don't think they're going to give up the bombs. I just don't think we lose anything by talking to them. In general, I supported lifting some sanctions, uh, probably more sanctions than most um, people would support in order to get some changes in North Korean behavior. Uh, but I never wanted to like align myself with the people who promised that this process was going to lead to North Korea's disarmament because like, I did not think that was going to happen. And so that put me in a weird spot. I had a bunch of people telling me that I was, you know, uh, that I just hated Donald Trump, which is why I was opposed to the process. And a bunch of people telling me I was uh, John Bolton's new best friend because, you know, and it was like, I just, I don't know, man. Well, it is interesting that we put such value on uh, the fact of the president talking to some leader that we resent or think is, a, is an atrocious uh, man, even though there's clear advantages to us even if you can't get a deal done to at least understand what they care about, how they're thinking about this. And given the very little connection that we, we have with the North Koreans and certainly at the leadership level, it seems like it was useful to at least have that meeting, even if the deal was not likely um, to at least understand where they're coming from and what we can expect from them. Yeah. I think about the Cuban missile crisis where, you know, Kennedy has the John F. Kennedy has the two letters from Khrushchev. And he has to decide, like, which one is the real Khrushchev. 
And I, I'm just looking. I think it's Llewellyn Thompson, although my memory is often terrible about these things. But one of Kennedy's advisors had known Khrushchev personally during a stint in the Soviet Union. And like, sure, you could say like, well, you know, hanging out with commies. But he was able to be like, I know the man. And this is the real letter. And this is the one he wrote with the general staring over his shoulder. So ignore the fake letter and respond to the real letter. And I, I just, I don't have any problem with that. I think it is good to understand your adversaries. They are human beings. They have all the same failings and foibles that we all do. And to know them and to understand them, uh, particularly in a crisis, I think is an enormous benefit. And so that, you that's know, how you know be, their weaknesses, right? I mean, George yeah, that's also spent, true. spent years in Russia in the Soviet Union, and he was the author of the containment strategy during the Cold War. Yes. When you understand things, I think you are in a greater position of power. So, you know, I can be as critical as as anybody about Trump's demeanor and how he handled things. But I think the 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 idea of a president saying. This is an important thing I have to deal with, and I would like to know what my counterpart is like. Um, I, I don't find that objectionable at all. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing for a president to want to do. Well, Jeffrey, this was a terrific conversation, scary, but um, in some ways optimistic. Uh, the world is not coming to an end, at least <laughs> that's the way I'm going to interpret your words. But thank you so much for coming, and thank you for spending the time to educate all of us on these really important issues. It was great fun.